And on, on Father's Day, um, I, or I'm just inviting my dad up. Sorry about that. On Father's Day, I get to have my dad come and preach with me. So that's yes. pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Father's Day to you, sir. Thank you, Kevin. You called me Chris. That's awesome. I have to say, Aiden, where's Aiden? Aiden is the, you can be seated, by the way. Yes. Aiden's the young man that played the violin. That was a gift to me. Was it to some of you? Like, wow. That was beautiful. So uh, just a quick word to, to dads before we read the passage that we're going to look at together. Um, Father, that, that title, when it's bestowed upon you, is weighty. Right, dads? It's like weighty. It's like mother. It's like you can't quite live up to it. And so I'm here to tell you, as somebody on the other side of all of that, I'm here to tell you, if you put the full measure of your confidence and trust in the Heavenly Father, then he will give you the wisdom and the strength that you don't have that you need. So I'm here to testify to that. So dads, bless you. And I'm saying it to all these young men because our church is full of young men. A lot of them aren't here because they're probably being treated by their families right now. But we, we have a plethora of young men and young women who are raising kids. So God bless you guys on this Father's Day. So now to read the passage, I'm going to invite my wife. And there's a microphone, Teresa, right there. Of Get this, 40 years, 10 months, and 4 days. My wife of 40 years, 10 months, and four days, that's true, um, to come up and read the passage. So I would encourage you to please stand as we hear from God's word. In honor of Father's Day, I just have to tell one quick thing about our, my, my dad <laughs> and best dad. Um, when we were little, if he would come into the house and everything was going crazy, he just stood there with a stern face and said, where's your mother? Where's your mother? So that's my, that's my advice to the young people. <laughs> with this beautiful passage, I would encourage you, if you'd like, to um, close your eyes and really just soak it in. It's about not being anxious, which we can all use. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon 
in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Before, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you that you're our perfect heavenly father. We pray now that our hearts would be quiet enough to hear from you. And may my words be full of not my wisdom, but yours. And we ask it and beg from Jesus, the son. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. I know most of you, but there's a few I don't, so I should formally introduce myself so you don't think this is some club. Like, um, my, my name's Chris Reed, and I've had the pleasure and the honor and the privilege of actually, along with Doug Wine and a, and a few others you may know, of serving as an elder of this church for three decades. That's pretty special. Um, starting up in paradise, and then we, as Kevin shared, Vespers about 10 years ago, and it's been an, a rich experience for me. And, but I'm probably better known as Andrew's dad and Kevin's dad and Jacob's dad and Rachel's dad and Papa, that Crosby will say the entire sermon, to eight littles. So life is good for me. Life is very good. So I think it's fitting on Father's Day to be hearing from the son Jesus talking about his father. His dad. And that's what this sermon is. In fact, I don't know if you're aware, but the longest discourse in the New Testament comes from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it's Jesus gathering his disciples together, right? And some other folks who were just super interested, and they sat on a mountainside and he spoke for three chapters of dialogue. And I could argue. As someone who's an historian, I could argue that historians and even secular minds would say that the, perhaps those, those words, that discourse, is the most powerful, transformative words ever said in Western civilization for sure. We, if we believe, would say they're the most powerful words ever spoken. They change hearts, right? And so... That's probably reason one why I selected this passage. When uh, Josh asked me if, if, if I could speak for him. So if you don't know who Josh is, he is our senior pastor. And he is right now hopefully by some water with a bunch of friends, having played golf, and now in a hammock with a good book. So that's where Pastor Josh is. Good on him. And then Pastor Brian, if you don't know, Brian is on sabbatical. So um, next man up. 
I'm just very glad to be here. So in choosing that passage, um, I believe that that very last verse, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. If you ask Jesus, if he was in a seminar on how to give a sermon at a seminary, and you said, Jesus, tell us what the main point of your sermon is. I think he'd say the fulcrum point of my whole message is Matthew 6, 33. Seek first my heavenly father and his righteousness and everything will be taken care of. And everything I say before and after it is all resting, balancing on that statement. It's, it's like revolutionary. So, as I was preparing this message, I began to realize it's going to be mainly a testimony. I hope you're okay with that. I've never given a message where it's mainly a testimony. But it just seemed fitting as I prepared. So I'm just here to testify, okay? I've been doing this for 45 years. This, I'm not 45 years old. I mean, this Christian journey that I'm on. And I just want to testify for all of you that you can lean into that verse. Matthew 6, 33. I also selected this passage because about a month ago, another elder, Caleb Fleming, a young elder, gave this powerful sermon on the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And he took such a fresh look at it and it stimulated thought for me that I'd never really pondered. And so we're going to make some connections with that. And then finally, I selected this passage because I'm prone to worry and to be anxious. Can anybody relate? Thank you, Clayton, for, for nodding your head from the moment I said that, brother. <laughs> Can you relate to that? You struggle with that? You struggle with anxiousness, with worry, with life feeling overwhelming? Then Jesus has words for you. So let's, let's take some moments and consider his sermon to us about his heavenly father, the good father. Oswald Chambers, this man of God who wrote this devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. Such a powerful devotional in my life. Oswald Chambers, when writing about this single verse, seek ye first, said this, how do we make our relationship with God the dominating focus of our lives? And how do we become cautiously carefree about everything else in comparison? Don't you love that term? Cautiously carefree. So that's what I want to explore with you. How do we make our relationship with God the dominating focus of our lives? And how do we become cautiously carefree about everything else in comparison? So you ready to do that with me? Okay, we're going to start with some trivia then. All right, you good with that? Okay, I won't put anybody on the spot. My lifetime was spent as an educator. I have to do this. Okay, it's just in my blood. All right. So here's what I have for you. By the way, one of my students, where's Aaron? Aaron, raise your hand right there, brother. Just graduated from PCMS Bulldog. He and I kind of like retired together. So love that man. He's checking out this whole Christianity thing. I'm glad you're here. So, trivia. 
novels. I love to read. I'm like a readaholic. And so opening lines, famous opening lines of classic books. Some of you have already turned me off. But guess what? I chose and selected famous opening lines from all these classic books that have been turned into movies. Yeah. All right? Nathaniel Wine is with me. So no excuses, you guys. All right? They've all been made into film. So we'll start with number one. Now, I need to ask you to please give a little think time before you respond. Some of us are like slow processors. Some of you are sharp. So after I say it, could you just hold for a sec? All right, are we good with that? 1952, copyright of this book. First line of the book. Where's Papa going with that ax? Where's Papa going? with that axe. Jordan, you can't say it. Alvin, you guys are really kind to show up twice in a day. Okay, you ready? What is it? Who said that? Way to go, Charlotte's Web, E.B. White. Can you imagine a more like gut punch opening line of a book? Ooh, a children's book, no less. Whoa. 1813, over 200 years ago this book was published. 1813, it's a classic. It is a, true, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Oh, how quaint and dated these lines are that I read to you. I just added that. 1813, it is truth universally acknowledged that a single man is in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a good wife. Well, do you think you have it, Melissa? I mean, Molly, sorry. Molly thinks she has it. I'm loving this. Say it. Oh, yes, pride and prejudice. Way to go, Molly. Jane Austen. All right. 1925. The Roaring Twenties. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. I'm seeing puzzled looks. DiCaprio played him. Give it to me. The Great Gatsby F. Scott Fitzgerald. An interesting novel, wasn't it? Okay. This one gets me every time. 1952, if Doug Wine were here, he'd get it in a heartbeat. So Nathaniel, you're gonna have to pinch it for your dad, no pressure. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. Isn't that a wickedly good line? This novel opens, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. Anyone? Ooh. A lot of people in the morning said Chronicles of Narnia. You got the actual book. What is it? Voyage of the Dawn Treader. C.S. Lewis, genius. And then after the service this morning, who was it, Hannah? Little Hannah Davenport came up and said, Mr. Reed, C.S. Lewis wrote that book in 16 days. I'm like, figures, huh? When you're a genius, you're a genius. Okay, the last one. This one's gonna be obscure. I may need to help you. 1976, it's fresh for me because it's the only one of these where I didn't read the book first. 
Shame on me as an educator. I watched the film. It was like, <clears throat> all right? In our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. You got it in your mind, don't you? You don't need any help. I see a lot of acknowledgement. What is it? Dave, yeah, river runs through it. If you haven't seen the movie or read the short story, which is only 100 pages long, written by a man in his 70s, it's the first time he ever wrote a published book, Norman MacLean. Powerful. So what's the connection here? So if we said that Jesus is giving this discourse, this sermon, then we need to be attentive to the very first words he spoke, the very first words Jesus spoke. The first thing that came out of his mouth in Matthew 5 was the first beatitude. Do you remember it? Do you know it by heart, anybody? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's the word kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling us to be broken and poor in spirit. And I'm, I'm asking, what does that mean? Because for so long I looked at those Beatitudes before I heard Caleb's sermon, like almost like the Enneagram. Like, I'm pretty good at being meek and I might be a wing on this one, but you know, being poor in spirit, I can't relate. My life's been rich. What, what, what Caleb did for me was like, Jesus spoke those Beatitudes in an orderly fashion on purpose. They build on each other, and they're to wash over us all the time. All of us are called to be poor in spirit if we're Christians. And I think I know maybe what that would look like. So, so stay with me. Imagine that you've woken up in the morning every day of your life as a believer. I think it would look like this if you're poor in spirit. God. Apart from you, I can't do anything today. The world is messed up and broken. And I think I'm just as messed up and broken. I cannot control things. I have tried. I need you. Apart from you, I can do nothing, but I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. So today, Jesus, whatever you have for me, help me to do it well and faithfully. Does that sound like somebody poor in spirit? Yes, it does, I think. It does. That's what poor in spirit means. I think it's, I really do believe it's that simple. It's a humility of heart that you really aren't controlled, by the way, or you really aren't in control, by the way. Have you figured that out? A secularist, an atheist, an agnostic, a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, we, we would all kind of admit, ultimately, we're not really in control of everything. It's just a question of where do you want to put the locus of control. Somebody who is poor in spirit says, I am broken, but God is good. And so when I awaken each day, I will put my trust in him and seek him first above all else. So can I testify? testify number one to this and you can hear a little about me okay Aaron you're gonna like this because it involves girls okay so I was like 
a year and a half into this journey of faith for me. I mean, it started at birth. I believe that for all of us. But for me, the actual knowledge, even, I was only a year and a half in, and I'd been dating this young woman, actually two years. So we'd finished our senior year together and had gone a year of college, and it was obviously really serious. She came from a Christian home, grew up in the faith. I was new to the faith. And I went away to work at Woodleaf, a Young Life camp. And when I got back, she called and said, Chris, I need to talk to you. And there was something strange about her voice. And when she got to my home, she said, the youth pastor at our church approached me and just looked me in the eye and said, God's called me to you, and I think we're going to be married. Knowing that she had a boyfriend. Does this sound like a film or something, like made up? I lived it. I lived it. Now, why do I share that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the broken. A 19-year-old, 18 and a half, broken, slayed, just completely slain in spirit. And I look back now and I ponder and I think, thank you, God, that A, I didn't become bitter and angry and go, really? This is how Christian leaders and pastors act? I could have gone there, right? Can't you see how I could, you could justify me becoming a complete agnostic or atheist? God didn't allow that. In fact, I would say he was good to me because he taught me early on to be humbled, to be broken. And he taught me that he cares for me and he will carry me through really hard times. And here's how it played out. It was awesome. Um, my friends, my Christian friends became like lifelines. And this right here became food for my soul. And prayer was like um, breath, okay? And I don't think that that's the way um, life goes where, okay, I can check that box now and then I'm done growing as a Christian. That was the beginning point for me to be poor in spirit and to recognize I really am not in control. <laughs> and I really need a God who cares for me. Just like he cares for the birds in the air and the lilies in the field, he cares for me. He provided a rich year for me, a very rich year. And at the end of the year, I ended up meeting that beautiful woman that you just heard from. So, I can testify to you now that to be poor in spirit is the place where we need to be often. And it's a lousy feeling. And it can be discouraging. But we're bonded with a suffering servant. And he often uses us in our darkest places to teach us and to grow us and to give us what we need. Not what we want, Sometimes I wanted Lord. But he gives us what we need exactly. If you're wondering about this like emotion, it's thankfulness. Kind of like overwhelming thankfulness. Okay. Two. 
It's my second point. If becoming poor in spirit is an entry into the kingdom of heaven, if it's an entry into seeking first God and his righteousness, then worry and anxiousness are major roadblocks. They're hindrances. A fourth century monk term, well, a fourth century monk came up with these sins that were supposed to be deadly sins. You heard the seven deadly sins? There's a good wine called Seven Deadly Zins, actually, but it's actually not that good. It's, anyway, um, Seven Deadly Sins, it's like anger, lust, pride, right? Slav, being a sloth. Um, I think Jesus is calling us out in this passage where he talks about stop worrying. Look at how God the Father takes care of his creation. If you're in the habit of worrying and being anxious on a daily basis as a believer, it's sin. In fact, when Jesus did the parable of the sower and the seeds, if you don't know it, he talked about how seeds are sown on soil and a lot of them get choked out. Remember that parable he shared? Jesus didn't say it was anger, lust, pride, these big sins. Guess what it was that choked out the word in our lives? Cares of the world, worries, anxiousness. Interesting, huh? Does that convict you? Convicts me. <laughs> All right. So I want to testify to how that worked itself out in my life, going back to my early life again. I was raised by two amazing, loving parents, and they gave my siblings and I, three siblings and me, this incredible moral compass that was embedded much in Christian principles. But by the time I came along, I was the third. There was no prayer. There was no church. There was no fellowship with Christians. There was not any, even any God talk except maybe cursing. But there was no God talk. It just wasn't part of my upbringing. And then God drew me in. And uh, he used a ministry called Young Life and in high school. And it was my mom, of all people, my beautiful mom, who said, um, I'm a junior in high school. She's like, Christopher, only your mom can use your whole name, right? Christopher, you need to go to that Young Life thing. I think you'll find a cute girl. <laughs> Am I right, guys? Yeah, I did. Um, so I went, and I was, you know, drawn. I was drawn in by God. And um, I I'll never forget, after, after that experience with my buddy praying with me, I went to school, Pleasant Valley High School, 1976. And I'm walking around in the quad, and all these people that I know from Young Life, and that I know they're Christian people, they had heard this good news. And they're like, Chris, um, this is awesome. We've been praying for you so much. And my first thought was, praying for me? That's weird. What do you mean? Praying for me. Is there something wrong with me? You know? I think we forget sometimes as Christians how people think. We get so myopic, right? I was like, wow, okay. All right, I guess that's good. And then secondly, they were like, how do you feel? And I was like, I feel light. I feel light. Two kinds of light. Like the light 
shining through these beautiful stained glass windows, that kind of light, the light of Jesus. But light as in buoyant, that kind of light, like, wow. Because even as a 17-year-old boy, young man, I was already like starting to kind of carry the worries of the world, you know? Can you remember back to junior high and high school and how insecure it can be, right? And how just emotionally wrenching it can be? Suddenly, I had a place to put my fears, my anxiousness, my worries, the weightiness of the world. I had a place to put it with Jesus, who said, Chris, are you tired? Do you need rest? Are you weary? Come to me. Right? Take on my yoke upon you. It's easy. I, I'm going to be with you now. I'd love to say since that day to today, it's been this perfectly like straight line up for 45 years. It's been 45 years and it hasn't. <laughs> I need to just keep relearning that and reletting that wash over me. I love what Kevin, my son Kevin's tattoo says. Doesn't it say he writes straight on crooked lines? Is that what it says? It's that, it's that sense that even in our brokenness, God just can make the path straight. It's beautiful. So I'm, I'm here to testify that God is good. You can lean into that verse. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be taken care of. He'll give you not what you want always, but he will give you everything you need in abundance. So he's called me and he's calling you to be gardeners, not plate spinners. That's a wild transition, isn't it? Okay, plate spinners. You, you gray hairs in the audience with me, do you remember Ed Sullivan? The Ed Sullivan Show. So for all you young people, back in the day when it was black and white television, and there were three channels total, ABC, CBS, and NBC, that was it. Appointment viewing for the Reed family when I was a boy was the Ed Sullivan show every week. And it was a variety show. And they would have a major act. Like, for instance, the Beatles debuted on American television on the Ed Sullivan show. And it was a big deal. And then he would surround the main act that week with a bunch of, like, fill-in acts, which I loved. Dog trainers, magicians, jugglers comedians, and plate spinners. So let me tell you what plate spinners do. Those of you who've never seen it. You can YouTube this, by the way, I checked. And it's even Ed Sullivan's show, black and white. So there's a table, and the performer comes out, and there are these beautiful china plates in front of these long, tall wooden dowels. Picture just long, tall wooden dowels, almost like a straw, all right? And they would take a plate, and, and the performer would place the plate on a wooden dowel and start to spin it, right? And, well, I know, I know how to do that. I learned how to spin a basketball early on. I realized in middle school, if I showed off to the boys in the first day of school, they're like, you're pretty cool, Mr. Reed. You can spin a basketball. So I thought these people were so cool. They'd get it spinning, then they'd run to another dowel and plate and start it up and get it going. And what would start to happen with that first plate? 
start to wobble and they'd run back and they'd start spinning it really quickly and then they'd get a third one going and the second one would start to wobble and pretty soon they could get up to five, six, seven plates spinning and you always kind of wanted one to fall and crash which would do every, off, every so often it was like dramatic. It's like NASCAR when they crash. You kind of want it to happen. You don't want anybody to get hurt but you want it to happen. So they're spinning these things and I'm just sharing this as a, as a word picture for you of how we often live. Okay, how I often live. How's that? Relationships. God, yeah, yeah. Okay, work. Mm-hmm, right? Family. Ooh, ooh, that's a lot. Um, uh, friendships. Uh, financial strain. I, got, I just got to keep it going, right? And it's kind of frantic and it's kind of exhausting. And Jesus says, that's no way to live. This is no way to live. You can't do that. You will burn out. Your, your adrenal gland will fail. Okay? You need me. You need to live like a gardener. Okay, I've given you a plot of land. All of you have been given some soil to tend to. Right? Alvin is a gardener, a beautiful gardener. He tends to soil. And he knows that God provides everything you need. The sun and the water and the miracle of photosynthesis and all that stuff. And we're asked every day to simply tend to the garden he's given us and trust that he will produce the fruit in our lives. Believe it and trust that in all our brokenness. I think it's why Teresa and I have always so much admired um, farmers. We have good friends who, through the years who are farmers. We're going to the book, book farm tomorrow night for dinner. We love the books. They're a farming family, longtime farming family. And I think we call them salt of the earth. There's another allusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, salt of the earth people, because they're like, we're going to tend to the soil, we're going to do what we're supposed to do, and we know that stuff's going to happen. Drought may come, crops may fail. I can't control everything. I'm just going to be faithful, trust, and God will provide. And God always seems to provide for them, even through hard times. That's what he's calling us to be. You know, This is why this verse, seek first his kingdom, just became, Teresa and my theme verse, right from the get-go as a married couple because we realized so quickly we can't, like, figure this all out. And so that little song we would sing every week at Young Life Club, Seek ye first the kingdom. It was that song, like, yes, I think we need to actually do that. All right. So we're called to tend and trust. Tend to what God has given you, each of you, and trust that he will bear fruit in God's time. Can I? Yeah, we're good. A few more tidbits and then we'll be done together. As a, as a, as a young believer, once again, I was given this little booklet and I checked and it's still, it's still being published. So I encourage you to maybe get it if you don't. Have it. It's a little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. Have you heard of it? It's very simple. It's a beautiful word picture. 
It's the idea that Jesus is now like embodying you and he wants to go with you through the rooms of your life and just clean house and take over and give you a deep, deep sense of peace. But all of us always have that one closet where we put skeletons in there, like the bad stuff we do and the things we're ashamed of and the besetting sin or the worry or the control we want to keep, and he, and he, which is kind of silly when you think about it. Because if we really do believe he's the God of the universe that knew us while well, he knitted us in his, my mom's womb, really he doesn't know that about me? Isn't that... My heart cries home. Jesus said, take me even into your closets and I'll clean them out with you and it will go well with you. So I encourage you to, to do that with Jesus and do it regularly on a regular basis. And then secondly, I wanted to encourage you in something that I'm learning, but my wife's an expert someone who has spent a lifetime in prayer and counseling people and mentoring people. And she has this powerful thing that she goes through in her mind as she prays. She brings three things before the throne. Any anxious thoughts she has, any angry thoughts, and any fears. So each day, Lord, here's what I'm anxious about. Here's what I'm struggling with. Each day, Lord, is there anything I'm angry about? Am I angry at a person? Maybe my spouse. <laughs> Maybe a colleague. Maybe a kid. Maybe a friend. Maybe I'm angry at myself. And then what am I fearful about? What am I afraid of? Empty that out before the throne. Jesus will take that. Jordan, I'm going to put you on the spot. <clears throat> you won't mind. Do you have a Bible with you or do you have th that Hebrews verse memorized? So after I shared this morning in paradise, Jordan did the last song and he shared a passage in Hebrews that's like Teresa's individual life verse. Matthew 6.33 was like our life verse as a couple. This one was Teresa's. I'm like, I can't believe you just shared that. But it encouraged Jordan as he heard these words to share this verse. And I think it helps with emptying out, right? Anxiousness, anger, and fear. Could you stand and just call it out? Give a test, testimony to this verse. Thank you, Jordan. That's beautiful. Let us draw near to the throne of grace because we have, we have a father and a son who suffered and understands us. So we can go there with everything. And if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will take care of everything and we can be cautiously carefree 
about all, all other things in our lives in comparison. So my final testimony, I'm here to testify through heartache, like relational heartache. Pretty, wasn't that pretty serious heartache I experienced? <laughs> that was brutal. Marriage and children and career and about with depression when I was 50. That just slammed me. Shocked me. And a fire that consumed every material possession we owned. God has been near. I'm here to testify to that. Joyfully. Even though it looks like I'm sad, it's joyful. Um, I can't speak for anybody else who went through the fire, not even my wife. I can speak for me. But after about a year, when people would ask how I'm doing, I would say this, and I meant it. I felt in a perverse sort of way privileged to have experienced it. Because I got to find out, do I really believe, seek ye first the kingdom? Do I really believe when Jesus said, everything's going to burn away. The only thing that's going to remain is faith, hope, and love. I got to find out. Guess what? <laughs> so, let's encourage one another in Jesus' words and remind ourselves seeking God first is our great and only hope. Can I get an amen? Yeah. All right, let's sing one.